Okay, hello everyone. My apologies for our sound system on Sunday, how it collapsed. Uh, I didn't get a chance to get back in on Sunday to re-record the sermon, so I'm doing it now on Monday. And uh, hopefully we'll continue to iron out all the kinks <laughs> with technology, but I think that's somewhat dreaming when it comes to technology, but we should be uh, working towards uh, less and less of this happening, and I thank you for your patience. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, and we are going to be camping out, hanging out in chapter 9, uh, starting in 19b. The last two weeks, not this last Sunday, but the two Sundays before it, Dave, Pastor Dave, has walked us wonderfully through Paul's conversion and the profound lessons that we, as followers of Christ, can learn from it. And today's sermon will be tightly hinged with Dave's as it's talking about the transformation that took place, that that. Saul had. It was a, an immediate transfer, transfer, transformation. It wasn't a transformation that took place uh, months down the road, years down the road. It was immediately right after his conversion. There was a 180 turn. The man who was on a mission to hunt Christians, to imprison Christians, and even kill Christians is now a man who is proclaiming Christ openly in the streets and is becoming the hunted. And we're going to be looking at Paul's preparation for ministry. Now, us who has the, uh, the privilege of time and the Word of God, we can read and we know today who Saul became, that he became the great apostle Paul. But these few little verses here that Luke, the author of Acts, kind of jump, puts them in, it's talking about the, the, the years that prepared Paul for his great and remarkable ministry as an apostle. And we see what prepared Paul to preach faithfully uh, and to suffer well. We see what prepared Paul to be used by God in mighty ways, including being the author of 13 of the 27 uh, New Testament books. And the goal of our sermon today is to see how we too can be used by God, to be prepared by God, to be used by Him in extraordinary ways ways. God still uses people today in extraordinary ways. Amen. So with that in mind, let's read our verses today, starting in verse 19b, where Dave left off last week. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and the ones who call, on the ones who call upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates uh, day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through the opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. 
And when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the reading of your word. Lord, may your words be much, but mine be few, because there is life in your words. Father, may your scriptures, your holy scriptures that are breathed out by you, would they convict our hearts and change us and, become, and allow us to become more in the image of your Son, Lord, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So what we see right off the bat in our verses today is after Paul's conversion and baptism and a little bit of a quick meal, he spent some time with the disciples in Damascus and immediately got to work preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, verse 20 tells us that he was preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. From, from the moment Paul began preaching in the synagogues in Damascus, his message was about that, that Jesus was the Son of God. He declared it to the Jewish people. And this is important to notice because uh, what, what happened to Paul is that he was thoroughly trained in the Old Testament law and the Messianic prophecies. And what happened on his, on his Damascus Road experiences, all the dots are starting to connect. And boom, Jesus is the Son of God. And he was so overwhelmed that he couldn't help but sharing it. And it's important to know that it is the only time in the book of Acts that the phrase Son of God, the title Son of God, is used for Jesus. It's used a lot of every places in the Bible. But this is the only time in all of the book of Acts that, that it's, it's said that Jesus is the Son of God. I just find that fascinating because it's Paul, it's Saul who was trained in the Old Testament law going, whoa, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. All the zeal which Saul had previously put into his persecuting activity, he is now devoted to the service of his new Master, And what I find fascinating about this is that Paul didn't wait. He immediately began preaching the gospel to those who would listen. In a moment, we will get to Saul's preparation time, which does have some waiting involved. But what we see right now is that he was so overwhelmed that he had to share this good news with those around him. And my question for you, I have this wondering, do we still feel that same urgency that Saul felt in that moment? Do we still feel zealful and ready to share the good news with our community, with the people of Drumheller? Or have we become complacent in thinking somebody else will do it when nobody is doing it? Sharing the good news is not just for those who are well-trained or seasoned in their faith. Sharing the good news is a requirement of all who are in Christ. And we see, we see Paul doing this uh, as a new convert. He didn't have it all figured out. Yes, he was trained in the Old Testament law. He was, he was, it was a mastermind in, uh, in the Jewish scriptures. But he didn't have a lick of understanding of Christian theology at this moment. But one thing he knew for sure 
And it's one thing we all know, and it should be the basis for all we know, that Jesus is the Son of God. And he preached that, and he preached it boldly. And in my experience, I couldn't help but think of this, that uh, I, have, uh, uh, I got my knack in ministry with doing uh, uh, street evangelism, sharing the gospel with random strangers on the streets. And I've seen on a number of occasions through conversations with uh, uh, complete strangers, uh, them become convicted of their sins in that moment. They, they, they cry out to the Lord Jesus, and they, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that they were saved instantly before my eyes. And I, and I remember this one time, I, I would mainly do bar ministry because it was the, the time when you would get the most people to talk to in Chatham. But if you ever go to Chatham, Ontario, downtown is a long stretch of just bar, 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 bar. There's a handful of bars that are, are all in the downtown quarter and you can walk from one bar to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. All right, so that's what we would do. We would wait for people to come out from one bar and go to the other and we'd catch them and we'd tell them about Jesus or we'd catch them when they're out for a smoke break. And this one time we saw this group of people uh, uh, heading towards, uh, I'll call it a gentleman's club, even though no real gentleman would ever step foot in one. And they were heading into this gentleman's club and we stopped them and they were gracious. They gave us of their time. They listened to our message. And one man in that group, uh, he, he fell down and he, he, like on his knees, and he confessed that Christ was the Lord. He, he was convicted of his sin. And it, what was wild is that he started telling the group that he was with that this is what I just experienced. And there was other people in the, in the building that he must have known. And he went in there and he grabbed them by the shoulders and, and pulled them out of that gentleman's club. And he says, you got to listen to this. This is what just happened to me. I believe in Jesus. Listen to what these guys have to say. And, I, and he went back in. He was just pulling people out. I'm, I'm sure they were just random strangers. And my friend and I, we shared the gospel with more people in one night than I ever have in my whole life because this man was so convinced that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, I wasn't dealing with the Apostle Paul as far as I know, but Paul too, who was a murderer and hated the church, experienced Christ on the road to Damascus and began to preach it as if his life depended on it, that Jesus was the Son of God. And this was understandably shocking to the people who listened to him. Just look at verse 21. And all who heard him uh, and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? You see, Saul's original mission to persecute Christians was so well known that all who heard him, not some who heard him, all who heard him were amazed and wondered if Saul, the man who was preaching Christ in the synagogues, was the same Saul who had come to Damascus to kidnap Christians in verse 21. Those all, uh, those all at the synagogue recognized just how unprecedented this was. The person who was voted least likely in their rabbinical school to ever become a Christian is now a vocal proponent of Jesus Christ. I'm sure the ones who heard this were probably thinking mistaken identity is more likely explanation than the truth. But as Saul proclaimed the gospel, he grew in fellowship with the body there at Damascus. And it increased in spiritual maturity and knowledge. He even confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Remember, trained thoroughly in Jewish literature, including the Messianic prophecies of the coming Christ, and he connected the dots. And he knew so much 
that he confounded, he dumbfounded the Jews he spoke with because they couldn't argue. And nothing, nothing, if I'm speaking from a human nature, feels better than just dropping those truth bombs and they, they have nothing to say, just jaws dropped. But Saul was doing absolutely the last thing that anyone in his time would have expected. The chief persecutor of the church was now its chief apologist. The, the persecutor has become the preacher. It's a beautiful story. And as we learned last, uh, last week in Dave's message, that no one is outside of, of God's saving grace. No one has sinned too much. No one has gone too far. There is no heart that is too hard for God to save. He can save the hardest of heart. He can soften them, and he can save the staunchest of sinners and make them saints. No one is too far. So with that in mind, the family member who you have written off because of whatever they've done, that community member that you've just given up on, the person in your life who you would just so easily say in conversation, well, they would never believe. God is able. Do you believe that for FBC? God is able to save them. If he could save Paul, he can save whoever, and he can use those same criminals, those same sinners to, to do his work in marvelous ways. It's beautiful. God can change people 180 degrees. But some of us, how we act in this church is like he changed us 360 degrees, just put us right back to how we were. But we should be changed 180. Whole turnaround. Whole different person. You don't know who is on the other end of your obedience. You don't know who you are talking with and sharing the gospel with and how God will use them. God could use you to share the gospel with the next Billy Graham. Just think of the person who shared the gospel with Billy Graham for a moment. He didn't know what would happen with Billy Graham. He just thought it was another person putting his faith in Christ. But God used him in mighty ways. And you could have that same person on the other end of your obedience. You never know. And what's interesting, though, is when, everyone, uh, when every Christian goes through these three stages, when they get saved and when they're starting to be used by God, and, and these three stages is first, this is easy. Hey, I love it. It's going good. And Paul, you know, is kind of here. And then it goes, ah, oh, this is difficult. And, and then you finally get to, well, this is impossible. Like, Lord, what are you calling me to? And Saul was in this first stage. You know, people are, uh, he, he's preaching, he's confounding Jews. Ministry's going good. And, and, and if we were there as a church during this time, we probably would have said to Saul, man, you're the hottest thing that's hit Damascus since Alexander the Great. Get going, reach the lost, we'll be praying for you. But Saul was not yet ready for frontline ministry. He was not ready to serve in the way that we know he is going to. Yes, he was already sharing the good news. He was confounding the Jews with his facts, but the Lord had a long program of preparation in store for him, longer than he or even we would have imagined. Saul's impressive abilities and background, even combined with his dramatic conversion experience, did not qualify him for the type of ministry that he was about to do. God still had some work to, uh, for him to do to get him ready for what laid ahead. More or less, the last half of chapter 9 shows us how God prepared Saul for service, highlighting three essentials for preparation that Saul went through and that we all go through to be used by God. And it illustrates how he has prepared us as well. The first step is found between verses 22 and 23, and it's spending time alone with God. And what we see in Galatians 1, 15 to 18, which 
covers the same time period uh, that we're talking about in Acts 9, Paul tells us that he went away for three years immediate, uh, 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 immediately after his conversion. So let's just read that together. But when he, this is Paul talking Galatians, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cyphus or Peter and remained with him 15 days. And most interpreters uh, believe that these three years in Arabia and Damascus, give or take, somewhere between those two places, probably more Arabia, uh, in verses 22 and 23 of Acts 9, uh, is talking about uh, this time uh, where uh, uh, Luke adds into verse 23, when many days had passed away. This seems to be a reference to that same time because when many days had passed is just a typical Bible way of meaning maybe many days, maybe a couple weeks, a couple months, or three years, right? So this is likely the same time period. Heard it right from Paul's mouth. This is what happened after his conversion. And, and this is how I would outline it. I found it might have been helpful to outline this a little bit because it might be a little confusing of how this all worked. So what we see is firstly, Saul's conversion and commission, which is found between chapter 9, verses 1 to 19a, and then his preaching in the synagogues of Damascus for a time immediately following his conversion, 19b to 22, and then his prolonged residence in Arabia, Galatians 1.17. And then his official return to Damascus, 9.23-25. And then his first visit to Jerusalem as a Christian some three years after his conversion. So with that little helpful outline of mine, let's break down the three ways that God prepared Saul for ministry and how he prepares us. And as I said, the first way he prepares us is by preparing us for service, uh, uh, for service by spending time alone with God. He uses us by spending time alone. The first step in God's preparation of Saul was a lonely stint in the Arabian wilderness. Specifically, this was the Sinai wilderness. Paul would later in his uh, letter to Galatians say that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And what associations this place must have had for Saul, sitting under the shadow of the Sinai where the Moses, the great lawgiver of the people to whom Paul belonged, uh, had spent 40 years for preparation for service. This is a divine poetry. At Sinai, Moses received and taught the law. Now at Sinai, Paul learns about grace. The first step in Saul's preparation took place in the backside of a desert, isolated, secluded, and alone. Saul's time in Arabia shrouded with mystery, but we can reasonably ascertain something of what transpired there. His two questions as he lay on the Damascus road accompanying, uh, often accompany those of new faith. We see in chapter 22 of Acts, verses 8 and 10, these two questions. Paul says, Who are you, Lord, and what shall I do, Lord? In, in answering these questions, we find out who God is, and by implication of finding out who God is, uh, we find out who we are and what we are meant to do. And Saul undoubtedly received divine instruction along these lines during his time with Christ in Arabia. 
the first thing Saul learned was who Jesus is. He was already convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, but in Arabia, the death, uh, the depth, sorry, of that truth undoubtedly broke over his soul, wave after refreshing wave. Jesus had prayed in his high priestly prayer that, that this is eternal life. This is what he prayed, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's found in John 17, 3. Now that prayer was being answered for Saul. Saul's experience of knowing Christ filled him with such a thirst that he later wrote, for, uh, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, Philippians 3, 8-10. Christ's explicit declaration that I am Jesus who you are persecuting, that's what he said to Paul on the road to Damascus, had brought Saul to a new understanding. Christ so identified with his people that when they were persecuted, he was being persecuted as well. This shows us that God is a vulnerable God. This made the cross more understandable to Saul. Jesus truly did suffer for the world's sins on the cross at Golgotha. And Saul's heart soared in a response of love for Christ. The second thing that Saul learned was who he was. Whenever we truly see God, we truly see ourselves. Just as Isaiah did when he saw the holy God sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling the temple, Isaiah 6.1, he cried in response, Woe is me, for I am, a man, for I am lost, and I am a man of unclean lips, Isaiah 6.5. He saw, he saw himself as he was, and God saw him. And Saul needed the same experience. He needed to get over basically being Saul. Think about it. His name, Saul, is named after the first king of Israel. He was a Benjamite and he was a proud Benjamite. Benjamites would go into war first. There was a common battle cry that says, After you, O Benjamin. He was a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, he was a, a respected and prestigious man. He had to get over that. Because as we follow Saul's life, we see that he preferred the name Paul, which means small. And now he is yoked to Christ for service. And Christ said, take my yoke and learn from me. For I am what? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. See, he took on Christ's yoke and learned humility. He learned the humility of Christ's yoke. Alan Redpath once said, when God wants to do an impossible task, God takes an impossible man and he crushes him. And it's what he did with Paul. And what we see from that is God always takes us to the end of ourselves before using us. The third thing Saul learned is what God wanted him to do. He learned that he was chosen to be a mighty hunter for God, a supreme missionary mastermind, and apologist par excellence. However, Saul would not only climb mountains for the Lord, but he would also endure pain. Jesus had told Ananias that he would show Saul how much he must suffer for my name's sake. That's found in 916 of Acts. Saul was prepared for effective service through the time he spent alone 
with God. And if we want to serve God, we too must spend time with Him. God may not ask us to seclude ourselves for three years or, or even months of preparation, but we must be with Him one-on-one regularly. You just look at Jesus, for example. He spent 18 years from His 12th birthday for three years of ministry. And at the beginning of His official ministry, He spent 40 days and 40 nights in wilderness time. We need to retreat regularly, often, daily, to commune with God and to be prepared by Him to accomplish His purposes for us. But also know that this desert time doesn't mean a monastic lifestyle. When Paul was in Arabia, he was very active. He was still preaching the gospel, making disciples, which I'll point out in just a couple minutes in another verse. But he was by no means serving the way he would be in just a short while. He was connecting the dots. He was learning and he was growing in relationship with Christ to be used by him. And we must remember that preparation for service does not happen overnight. It takes, just as it takes time to brew good coffee, it takes time to grow to maturity. The Lord is never in a hurry because the Lord is building us for eternity. You see, we humans were so narrow-sighted. We think months and days and weeks. But God's thinking of eternity. And he's building us for eternity. And sometimes along the way, he has to bench us. Such times can be lonely, painful, but they can also lead us to greater service. When you look at the great servants of the Bible, you often see pain and perplexity long before promotion, long before they're being used in great ways. But we live in a McDonald's world. We want fast food. We want it now. We want to be able to drive up through a drive-thru to a window, pay, grab our food, and boom, scarf it down long before we hit the kitchen table. And we impose that onto God and his plan and purposes for our lives, forgetting that the preparation period could be long or it could be short. It depends. Mine could be longer and yours could be shorter or vice versa. But oftentimes, before the promotion takes place, God is preparing us through many ways, but mainly through pain and perplexity. You see, when God opens one door, he closes another. We've all said that. You've said that in your life. I've said that. But I like to add this little tag on, but it's hell in the hallway. From getting through one door to the next, from going from one thing to God bringing you to the next and greater thing, it's hell in the hallway. But it's that hallway experience from one door to other where you are left waiting on God in the pain and suffering and questions of, what are you doing, God? Why did you bring me here? Have you left me high and dry? Are you truly actually going to use me? Are you sure you want me to leave this door and go to the next? Is what he uses to prepare you to walk through that next door. If he just pushed you right through to the next one, you wouldn't be ready. But he uses a sequence of pain, perplexity, questions, and waiting to prepare you for greater service. And we see this with Paul in our scriptures today. He goes into the Arabian wilderness. He receives, he receives his DD his doctrine of desert. And and he was moving towards effective service for Christ. But there were still more steps in his preparation. And we see that in verses 23 to 25, which I've titled, Being Prepared by a Dose of Reality. And verses 23 to 25 say, When many days have passed, so after about three years, remember, um, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples 
took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So Saul's ministry in Damascus after about three years of preparation was instantly met with resistance uh, uh, from the Jews in league with the governor, as we see from context in 2 Corinthians 11.32. They hid at the city gates in ambush, and Saul escaped only because one of the church members had a home in the city wall, which was very common, so that they could be let down uh, through a window in a basket in the dead of night. And one essential thing I want you to see from this verse, because we often just gloss over things in our reading, it says Paul's disciples took him by night. Well, just a few minutes ago, I said, hey, his time in Arabia wasn't just monastic. He wasn't just gone by himself doing nothing, but he was also actively preaching the gospel and making disciples. We see that Paul, after three years of, of, of Christian faith, has already have disciples. He doesn't wait till year 15, year 20. This is amazing. He is already making disciples. And you too, you can also make disciples, be it a year in or five years, 10 years, or 60 years in the faith. You are called as a Christian to make disciples who make disciples. And we see that with Paul, that he goes on and he makes men and women who are disciples of Christ who are going to make more disciples. See, a lot of times our mindset is we just got to get them to say a prayer. We got to get them to believe in Jesus. And so we're making converts, but we're not called to just make converts. We're called to make disciples, faithful men and women who are serving this world. He already had disciples. I find that fascinating. But getting back to our uh, verses today. Paul's disciples, they took him by night, knowing that the Jews were plotting to kill him. And I just think it's funny how the tables have turned. The hunter became the prey. The persecutor has become the persecuted. His disciples then lower him in a basket. Think of that for a moment. This is Saul, the well-respected Pharisee, the protege of Gamaliel, the man who was awarded the key of the, ci- the, 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 the key of the city of Damascus, per se, is now fleeing from those who once praised him, from the ones who respected him. He was fleeing like a low-life criminal in a basket out of a window in the dead of night. There was no prestige, no applause, just a scratchy basket in the privacy of night. Though in a way, this must have been exciting for Saul. As Churchill once says, nothing is more exhilarating than to be shot at without result. But it must have also been humiliating. In 2 Corinthians 11, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 30-33, Saul associates this experience with weakness. Now, for the sake of time, I won't read it. But in summary, Paul is in the face of these uh, fake apostles, these, these, these false apostles who were boasting in all what they were doing. Look at me. And uh, they're boasting with all their strengths. And then he says, yeah, okay, all right, if you want me to boast, I'll boast. Okay, you're going to make me boast, I'm boasting. And what I'm going to boast in is my weakness. And then he starts to list in a secret of weakness, of times of being beat and shipwrecked. And this is a common thing in his day for when you're boasting. You would, you would start with these, these smaller things and you build towards a crescendo. So just for an example, hey, I got a lot of money, I got a good job, and boom, look at my beautiful house. That's what I'm most proud of. So yeah, you're happy you got some money, you're happy you got a good job, but what you're most proud of is your big house. So this is what Paul's doing. Right? So he's saying, yeah, I was beaten, blah, blah, blah. And he says all these things. But the crescendo that he was building to is interesting. It was the basket experience. And I believe, I think, my speculation is he was building towards this because it was the mark 
of his ministry going forward, that he would suffer, that, it would be hum- that he'd be humble, and that he would glorify Christ. He didn't need the glory, but all glory to Christ. Paul knows that all the prestige that he had in the world is worthless to knowing Christ. He gladly boasts in the weakness because he knows that the world will also see those, will always see those who follow Christ as weak and as foolish, but yet he knows that in Christ he is strong and wise. What this story illustrates to us is the contrast between Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle. Although the same person Totally different outlooks. Saul of Tarsus traveled to Damascus full of man's power and authority and directed against God's people. But Paul the Apostle left Damascus humbly in a basket filled with the power and authority of Christ. We who are in Christ are often in the basket, humble and unseen, but we are known by the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we are a part of his family. And the world sees us as fools, but Christ sees us as precious. As someone wisely once said, God ruthlessly protects those he royally elects, and that is true without exception. Our humiliating failures can become marvelous preparation for greater service, if we let God use them that way, just as Paul did with the basket experience. And then lastly, as I close in the last, next couple minutes, preparing for, uh, our third, the third point is preparing for service through other believers' care. Acts 9.26 says, and when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a, uh, sorry, a disciple. And this was perfectly understandable, but it must have been crushing for Saul. You see, verse 26 is an honest but sad verse. We see Paul trying to join the church, but they were all afraid of him, and they wouldn't believe him. After a glorious conversion, and then three years of preparation, and then some frustration with a dose of reality, and now even worse, rejection from the mother church. He must be thinking, what's next, Jesus? And we want to be gracious. We want to step back and be a little gracious to the disciples in Jerusalem. After all, Paul was the arch enemy of the church who probably inflicted pain upon some of their family members and relatives. But their caution and suspicion ought to be tempered with a Christ-like spirit, which we see emerging in Barnabas. We see that Christ-like spirit emerging in Barnabas. Uh, 27 and 28 says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out uh, among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. See, Barnabas is our example of how we should be as a church. Just think about it for a minute. Nothing is harder than anyone to walk into a setting that you know very little about into a group of people who know each other very well and they know more about the subject than you do. That's hard. But with that in mind, even though that's true about our church, that we all know each other really well and we might know more about the subject than those in our community, we should be the easiest and the most welcoming of any group that we might face. The church family, our church family, should be the most welcoming of any group in Drumheller. When someone builds up the courage to walk through our doors, we all tend to think the same thing. Well, somebody else will extend that welcome to them. But sadly, everyone is thinking someone else will do it, and no one ends up doing it, unless there's a Barnabas. 
You see, Barnabas, he took Saul, and, and, and we can't, I don't think he went directly right to the apostles because he vouched for Saul. So I think he took Saul, he got to know Paul, and if he was around today, he would have cleared his schedule after church. He would have taken Saul out for lunch or maybe even invited him to his home. He would have got to know him, heard his story, and then said, okay, let's go to the apostles. I'm going to vouch for you. And he vouched for Paul just as Jesus used Ananias to bring Paul into the kingdom. Jesus used Barnabas to bring Saul into fellowship. It's amazing. Being a Barnabas is all of our calls. And it's a simple call, yet it's a very neglected call. Inviting new people to sit with you. Hey, I see you're new. You don't have a Bible. Why don't you read off of my Bible? Right? Having conversations with them. Extending invitations to them out for meals, even into your own home. It's that simple. But yet we neglect it because it may mean uncomfortable or awkward conversations. But Barnabas, he wasn't concerned about that. And his stakes were higher. He could have been imprisoned or even died. But he was concerned about one thing, getting to know Paul and welcoming him into the community. And we can do the same thing to the people of Drumheller. No matter what we know about them or no matter what we heard about them, I tend to, it drives me mad living in a small town sometimes. You bring up a name of someone you met on the street like, oh yeah, I've heard some things. I don't care. Like, let's, let's bring them to Christ. Just because they've done some horrible things doesn't exclude them from the grace of Christ. Because if that was true, you would be excluded from the grace of Christ and so would I. We're all messed up sinners who are saved by grace. We can extend a true welcome to our community. Yeah, it will get our hands dirty. Yeah, it will be awkward at times. And sure, it might even be painful. But we are being obedient to Christ. The result of Barnabas' care, according to Galatians 1, 18-19, was that Saul got to know James, the Lord's brother. And he spent two weeks at Peter's place. Just think of the healing and encouragement that came out of this from all the things that Saul did. We are often prepared for effective service by the counsel and care of other believers. And how beautiful the ministry of Barnabas is that we all should walk in. It's giving words of encouragement. It's confirming others' gifts in this church. It's reconciling believers with believers. Some of you, you just refuse to be reconciled, but this is the ministry of Barnabas. It's taking risks for Christ and human relationships and promoting even the ministries of others, rejoicing in another's success. God mightily uses men and women like Barnabas for his glory. And then verse 28 to uh, 30 tells us how Paul's ministry was relaunched. Again, not smooth sailing, but was met with resistance by the Hellenists. They sought to kill him in the church, realizing that Paul, okay, he's probably a little valuable. Uh, 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 They sent him away for a time, which brought peace to the church against persecution for a little while. Why? Well, because their arch nemesis, their arch enemy, is now their vocal proponent. So, like, of course, there's a lot of peace because now he's a Christian. And then in verse 31, we see, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church was growing, it has peace for a time, which up to this time, the church, uh, up, sorry, up to Stephen's death, had only been the church confined to just Jerusalem. 
But now, interesting as we gloss over so easily, we see that the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It's the church of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, and Jerusalem, right? So fulfilling the, this is fulfilling the words of our Savior. Where are you going to be a witness? It's amazing. They're fulfilling what Christ has called them to do. And we're going to actually see, we see that Paul goes off screen for the next little bit to Caesarea, then he sets to his hometown of Tarsus. And once in Tarsus, he spends about eight years ministering in Cilicia and Syria, Syria um, uh, where he'll stay until Barnabas comes looking for him in about chapter 11, verse 25. But with this, we see Luke's introduction to Saul of Tarsus coming to an end. And what we'll see next week is how uh, God is now already shifting the focus to including the Gentiles in the covenant. And we, we would think maybe, maybe that's going to be Paul. It's actually Peter. But that leaves us to reflect on the fact that God took the most unlikely convert and gave him a heart of flesh and changed his life completely. And he can do the same thing for you if you're watching this and you don't, you're not in Christ. And you can do the same thing for your neighbor. But Barnabas today, but sorry, but be a Barnabas today and welcome those who you would never uh, think who, uh, would ever enter this church and begin an intentional relationship with them. Have them over for dinner. Get to know them. Get messy. And remember from Paul's life, don't be afraid of time. Don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid of resistance. Don't be afraid of persecution because God uses it and he's faithful in it. So be obedient today. Let the Lord use you to be an instrument of his gospel in Drumheller. Amen. Be blessed.